This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 16, entitled Practical Applications of Biblical Unitarianism. Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thanks again so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith. I am your host, as always. Today, we're going to be examining why any of this even matters. What are the practical end-of-sermon applications for those who accept what the Bible says about God and Christ? Does being a monotheist and a believer in the human Jesus make any difference on how a Christian lives their life? In this episode, I wanted to offer a few comments on this. Now, I should note from the beginning that after prayerfully thinking on this subject, there's actually a whole lot more that can be said. So please do not regard the contents of this episode as all that the Bible has to say on the subject, for there's much more. So I'm going to break things down into three main issues that I think can bring application to believing in God being a single person and believing that Jesus is the human Messiah. The first point is that the human Jesus is regularly stressed as the object of a believer's trust, loyalty, and obedience within the New Testament. And even within this first point, I'm going to break it down even further into three different authors. So we'll start in point 1a with Paul. I'm going to read a passage here out of Galatians 2.20. Notice kind of what Paul says here about our understanding and our association with Jesus and how that applies to the Christian life. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's Galatians 2.20. You might notice in your translation of the Bible that it doesn't say the faithfulness of the Son of God. It might actually say faith in the Son of God, but actually the Greek text is very clear and unambiguous that it is the faith of the Son of God. And this noun, pistis, the Greek word for faith or faithfulness, there in a genitive construct is better understood as the faithfulness of the Son of God. It's not Paul's faith in Jesus. It's Paul living by Jesus' own faithfulness the faithfulness that Jesus demonstrated. Of course, the verse continues to say that that son of God loved Paul and gave himself up for Paul. So you could see there that there is the faithfulness being described at the end of the verse. So I do think that the translation of Paul saying that he lives by the faithfulness of the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me is actually correct and is something that is actually uh, described in a lot of modern commentaries over this particular phrase. So what is interesting here is that Paul seems to be saying that Jesus' own faithfulness, the faithfulness that Jesus demonstrated in his life as the Son of God, the life that we see recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, the life that culminated in Jesus giving himself up on the cross on behalf of you and me, is something that Paul can live and demonstrate within his own life. This places Jesus as the Son of God, as the object of the believer's trust, loyalty, and obedience. 
And actually, Paul has other places where he uses this phrase, faith of Jesus or faithfulness of Jesus. You could see it in Romans 3, Philippians 3, Ephesians chapter 3, and you can also see it in Revelation chapter 14. So this actually is a common enough phrase within the New Testament to warrant some study. Paul also says in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Verse 4, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Verse 5, Have this attitude among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, where Paul talks about how the attitude of humility, of regarding another person as more important than yourself, and regarding others' interests, is to be the attitude that is to be expressed within the mindset of Christian believers. And this attitude was also demonstrated in Christ Jesus. Paul here seems to think that Christ Jesus in his life, in his earthly ministry, demonstrated humility, demonstrated selfless activity, and demonstrated an attitude of putting others over himself. And of course, Philippians 2 continues to talk about Jesus who gave up his privileges and lived in obedience to God even to the point of death. So that passage there in Philippians 2, as we've demonstrated in a previous episode, is something to where Paul regards the life and the example of the human Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, a life of faithfulness and obedience and selflessness, as something that Christians should actually have and think. They're to have this attitude among themselves. That is a command in Philippians 2.5. Of course, this command would make no sense if Jesus really is God who decided one day to become a man. That is not an attitude that anyone can tangibly understand, nor could they emulate and follow in their life. It makes much more sense if Jesus was a human being who demonstrated loyalty and obedience to God, which ultimately led to his death. We can also look in the book of Hebrews, this is point 1b, and see that this author regards Jesus as someone whom believers can certainly place their faith in. Look at this passage here, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, he has been made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For, since he himself was tempted in that which he was suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This passage again, Hebrews 2, 17-18, talks about how Jesus was like his brethren in all things. That means that Jesus had brethren. He had brothers and sisters, meaning human beings. Human beings are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. That's very clear. That says quite a lot about who Jesus is. But because Jesus himself was tempted, Jesus as the high priest, who is faithful, is able to come to the aid of anyone who is tempted. And it's because Jesus was tempted. Now I need to remind you that God cannot be tempted. That is a fact that is repeatedly stated in Scripture. Hebrews goes on in Hebrews chapter 4 and says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. 
Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, to where Jesus is very clearly stated as the one who was tempted in all things, yet he did not succumb to sin. And because Jesus is this high priest who was tempted in this way, we are to draw near to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and find grace. So because Jesus is that one who is tempted just as we were, but without sin, we can therefore have confidence in drawing to that high priest's aid. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, continues this line of thinking. It states that, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. That is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, where it demonstrates that Jesus learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So Jesus, as the one who learned obedience, we can now have a source of eternal salvation if we also obey him in verse 9. So Jesus learned obedience, and therefore we should also learn to be obedient. And if we obey Jesus, we can receive a source of eternal salvation. So the book of Hebrews clearly makes Jesus the object of a believer's hope, trust, and obedience. We can also see this in the book of Revelation. This is point 1C. Revelation, written by John the prophet, has a major theme within its book that's often ignored or overlooked, namely the theme of conquering or the theme of overcoming. Jesus here is placed as the premier conqueror and overcomer that Christians are supposed to emulate and follow. Look at these passages. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5 says this, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. My point of reading this passage is that Jesus is the one who has conquered in his life. And Jesus, by the way, is the one here that is of the root of David. He is of the tribe of Judah, meaning he is a lineal descendant of Judah and a lineal human descendant of David. Jesus is the one who has conquered. But for me as a reader, I would like to know, how did Jesus conquer? In what ways did Jesus overcome? You see a similar connecting passage here in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21 at the end of the letters to the seven churches passage says this, he who conquers, or he who is conquering, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That's Revelation 3.21 to where we can see very clearly that the Christian who conquers or the Christian who overcomes will get this reward to sit down with Jesus on his throne, just as Jesus also conquered and was rewarded to sit down with his father on his throne. So we can see there that Jesus is the one who conquered and Christians are to follow in suit and to also overcome and conquer. So Christians are to conquer and overcome the same way that Jesus did. Jesus in the book of Revelation is the one who correctly defines conquering and overcoming. And this is important because in the Roman world, a conqueror 
or an overcomer was one who defeated their enemies with war and bloodshed and would naturally kill those enemies. But Jesus is someone who actually conquered in a very different way. Jesus didn't kill his enemies. Jesus actually was killed. Jesus wasn't the one who defeated his foes. In fact, it looked like on the cross that the foes defeated Jesus. How is it that Jesus conquers? Well, Jesus conquers paradoxically. Jesus conquers in a brand new way. And one of the themes of the book of Revelation is that Jesus redefines conquering for the readers. Jesus actually conquered by doing three things in his earthly ministry. Number one, he preached the gospel. He spoke about how the kingdom of God is a counter kingdom that's going to come and to take over the entire world. He also demonstrated perseverance in a way that was non-violent. Jesus didn't respond to confrontations with violence. In fact, he demonstrated perseverance or steadfastness with nonviolence. And ultimately, Jesus was willing to remain faithful even to the point of martyrdom. And we can see these themes in a variety of passages in the book of Revelation. But for one, let's look at Revelation 12 and verse 11, which says that they, these are the Christians, they conquered the devil, they conquered him, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. That's Revelation 12 and verse 11, a very powerful passage, that they conquered the devil because of the Lamb's blood, because of the word of their testimony, that is, the word that they're preaching, the evangelistic message, the gospel message, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. When faced with death, they were willing to be faithful and obedient to the end. They didn't recant. They also didn't respond with violence. And so we could see that Jesus is the object of faith and trust and obedience, even within the book of Revelation, because Jesus defines what it means to be a true conqueror and the theme of one who is conquering for the Christian believers is a major theme within the book of Revelation. The second point I want to acknowledge in today's episode is that correctly knowing who God and Christ are is the frequently stated desire and wish of God. Namely, God wants people to know who he is, and God wants people to know who Jesus is. This is stated in a variety of passages. The most famous one is the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, which commands Israel to listen, to hear, to pay attention. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. But the first command there is to listen, pay attention, to get this, to understand what is actually taking place. So, course, the command there is to listen to this. And of course, this is brought up again in the New Testament in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? Verse 29, Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. 
Verse 32, the scribe said to him, said to Jesus, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. That's Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34, to where the greatest commandment, Jesus states, is the command to hear, listen, pay attention, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord, and he is to be loved with all of one's heart, soul, mind, and strength. Of course, equally the importance of loving one's neighbor as themselves. The scribe here states that it is true that God is one. God is a single person. There was no one else besides him. And Jesus saw that this scribe had answered intelligently, and he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Another way of saying that the kingdom of God is near to you. So the Old Testament states that we are to hear and listen that God is one person. And the New Testament also states that we are to hear and listen that God is one person. And that responding appropriately to this is an intelligent response, according to Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, quote, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. There we have a hierarchy within the church that Paul wants his believers, Paul wants his churches to understand. God is the head of Christ, so God is number one. Christ is number two. The passage says that Christ is the head of every man. Those are males or husbands. And then we have the husbands are the head of the wives. So you have God, Christ, husbands, and wives. One, two, three, four in that particular order. But Paul says that he wants his believers to understand these things. The Bible there is stating that God ultimately wants us to understand that God is number one, Christ is number two, husbands are number three, and wives are number four. But for the sake of our study, we are interested in God being the head of Christ. God being number one and Christ being number two. That is 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. A similar passage we can see is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Starting in verse 3, which says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the human Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 6 to where God wants all people to be saved, and most importantly here, God wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth. What is that truth? That there is one God and a mediator between God and human beings, and that mediator is a human being himself, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. God wants everyone to know that truth, that God is the one God, and the one who is the mediator between God and human beings is himself a human being, Jesus, who gave himself up entirely as a ransom for all people. That is something that God desires for people to know and to understand, and he calls it the truth. That's 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 6. Our last point today is probably the most controversial point, 
but it is something that's stated in Scripture, so I think that Christians need to humbly and prayerfully wrestle with it. Our third point is that the entire book of 2 John is written to stress that the human Jesus is a standard for authentic Christian fellowship. I'm going to say that again. The entire book of 2 John is written to stress that the human Jesus is a standard for authentic Christian fellowship. I'm going to read the main section of 2 John, verses 7 through 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching about Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his wicked deeds. That's 2 John verses 7 through 11, which is a very striking and almost shocking passage, which says that many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not acknowledge Jesus as an enfleshed human being. What that passage means is they don't acknowledge Jesus as coming in flesh, as an actual, tangible member of the human race. This passage does not mean that Jesus Christ was someone who came into the flesh in an incarnational sense, as in Jesus pre-existed and he came down and became a human being. No, because Jesus is his human name. So Jesus as coming in flesh, Jesus as coming as an authentic human being. That's what this passage is saying. And the passage, specifically here in verse 7, is that deceivers have gone into the world who do not acknowledge and confess Jesus as this fleshly human person. Those who say these things, those who deceive and state these claims, are called a deceiver and the Antichrist. Of course, the warning in verse 8 is to watch yourselves, to pay attention. And the continued point in verse 9 is that anyone who does not abide or remain or dwell in this teaching about Christ. What teaching? It's the teaching that Jesus Christ is an authentic fleshly human being. The person who does not abide in this, verse 9 says they don't have God. But the person who does abide in this teaching, they possess both the Father and the Son. And then we have the warning in verses 10 through 11. And this warning is, I hate to say, it's, it's, uh, it's a very divisive warning. It says, if someone does not bring this teaching, if someone doesn't bring the teaching that Jesus is an authentic, fleshly human being, they are not to be received into your house. And of course, the house there was the house church. They had church and Christian fellowship within people's homes. That person who comes and states that Jesus is not a fleshly human being is not to be given a greeting because the person who gives that greeting is going to participate in that deceiver's wicked deeds. Christians who regard the Bible as authoritative in their life need to heed 2 John with prayer, humility, and obedience, especially prayer and humility. Because what we're seeing there is that those who don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as an authentic human being are people that are regarded as deceivers and antichrist. 
And if that's not a practical application of Christology, I sure don't know what is. So in conclusion, we have observed that the human Jesus who demonstrated faithfulness to God the Father during his earthly ministry is often and regularly held up as an example Christians are to emulate and follow. Point number two, the Bible often states that it is God's will and desire that believers correctly know him and his son. So Christians interested in obeying the will of God will naturally want to take seriously these questions of identity. And lastly, point number three, an entire book of the New Testament is dedicated to reminding Christians that the teaching about Jesus as a fleshly human being is tremendously important, while at the same time warning readers that those who do not acknowledge this human Jesus are demonstrating antichrist behavior and are to thus be avoided. If you enjoyed the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, and you would like to support the work that it is doing, be sure to check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much again for listening to us today at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and until next time, take care.